Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at SchoolStatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, Episode 113, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. How an email scam cost a school over a half a million dollars, and what type of impact did a massive ice raid in Mississippi have on schools? Stay with us. Class Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, Dr. Steve Graham has spent the past 30 years studying how to teach writing effectively, and he's here to offer suggestions on how we can improve the teaching of writing in K-12 schools. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here, and I'm joined by teacher extraordinaire, Lissa Pruitt. Lissa, how has the first week of school been going? Ooh, it is. I will sleep like the dead this weekend. <laughs> right. We're recording this on a Friday, mm-hmm. um, and I mean, it is. you just finished your last day of, I guess, you know, four straight days with kids, right? That's right. And I mean, was it was it crazier than last year? Like, what's going on? Mm, last year was my first year on this campus, so last year was crazier to me. But the car line situation this year was definitely out of control. I'm I'm in car line. Um, so, I mean, it's just been, I'm real sweaty. And um, it's <laughs> like just real right hot. Right now, It's yeah. real hot, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, okay, give me a, a, a crazy car line story. Can you share one with me? Yeah. So, like, you know, the way we do our car line is, like, we double stack the cars. So, two by two, they go in this long semicircle, and then we call the children's names out. We get them in a line that matches the line that they're, the place that their car is in line. Anyway, and then we say, okay, ready to load, and all the kids have to go to their car. And so, the idea is, hey, if you're at the beginning of the line, then your car is also at the beginning of the line. If you're in the middle of the line, then your car is going to be halfway, and then if you're very last in line, you're going to be in the back. So, you know, that all sounds like it makes perfect sense. But when you're dealing with second and third graders, no. It's like they go really like just bat, beep, crazy, like running up and down in between cars. And it's just like, in, you, you know, there's 700 children at my school. So I can't possibly know everybody's name on the first day. So I'm like, hey, 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 hey. I say a lot of that. Hey, sugar. Hey, sweetheart. Whoa, right here. Because, you know, you can't get too forceful. Their parents are right there in their cars. <laughs> and... um. Yeah, you're trying to be nice. And then what's really crazy is like, so once they all get loaded, I'm the person that has to walk all the way down in between the cars, which is like not hot enough, but try walking in between hot vehicles. And I have to make eye contact with the parents for them to give me a thumbs up that they, yes, have their child in their car, you know? Right. So I go car to car to car down the middle, just thumbs up, thumbs up, thumbs up. And so, yeah, I had a parent give me a thumbs up that she had her child. She got a big old smiling face, thumbs up. Yeah. So then I say, okay, roll. And so then here goes that we release 40 cars. Right. And we're ready to pull up the next one. And this lady stops. And it's, she's like, I don't have my child. So she just thought the thumbs up was like, do you have a good day? I guess so. I don't know. <laughs> and I was like, well, I said, do you have your kid? And gave me a thumbs up. She was like, I know. <laughs> I'm like, okay, well, we're only good as the information is we're given. And that's right. what I said to her. Hey, I'm just as good as the information that's given to me. (laughs) 
gosh. So I said we're ready. <laughs> I mean, in Carlisle at an at an elementary oh. school, it's like at least when you're dealing with middle schoolers and high schoolers, like they're they're less likely to just wander in front of a car. I say that, right? But, but with you know, you have a lot on the line. That's got to be stressful. Yeah, no, and I know you have one of those little drone things. I would. If you want to make an amazing video? You should come pull out and our. Our, my school's car line is, it really is amazing. The amount of cars that come through, the way we lock and load them, and then they're rolling. So, yeah, like my job is, that you know, not, that is that is an important job. I mean, because if some, if a child gets confused and runs a few cars back and then ducks and then runs, like I wouldn't see them. I wouldn't know. And it, and if I've gone and checked every car and then the cars start rolling and the kid runs because they panic, I mean, that could be terrible. Also, our bus line is impressive. So we have 700 kids. So they're either going out car line or they're going on the buses. And our bus line has to release around 2.30 or 2.35. But we don't start releasing car students until 2.10. So car line is stressful because you've got to get all those cars locked and loaded and out before you release the buses. Um, Because otherwise we hold up our bus routes and they can't make it to the middle and high school to get those children. So... Yeah, you should bring your drone, Nick. Well, you should first, you should come see what it's all about. I would and love to. I don't know. I that dare let you me. not to have a sweat ring on your back when it's done. No, no, that'll happen. <laughs> I, I, so I would love to bring the drone. I don't know. It's one of those things where I might just need to do it and then like beg for forgiveness later because I I can hear the call from the superintendent now. You know about flying a drone over kids and parents and cars and stuff. They probably. Mm. I'll talk to my principal. I don't. I, I think he would be fine with that. I mean, he climbed on the roof last year and spent okay. a day on the roof. Yeah. Um, to promote hey, if school he's game, attendance, we'll, we'll do it and we'll upload it to the class dismissed uh, <laughs> podcast website page. And I'll, I'll I'll edit the video real nice and speed it up so you don't have to sit there and watch for twenty minutes. You know, and <laughs> make it look real cool. Yeah. Um, I like that though. I'm, I don't know. Do you guys have like a conductor of Carline? Like, is, is there somebody who? I mean, someone has this game plan, right? Yeah, it's us. It's me. You're looking. It's me. Like, it's I mean, me like, and three like- other ladies, and we communicate with each other. And like, we're not joking around. Like, don't talk to us. Like, I had a mom, right. bless her heart, this week. A mom who I've taught. She's taught my child, and I've taught her kids. She rolled down her window, and I think she like said like a paragraph to me of things, and like. And then I was, you know, of course, I'm looking left, looking right. Like, I'm trying to be polite to her, but I'm not hearing a word she's saying because I'm doing my job. Right. So then I finally looked back at her, and I was like, I'm sorry. And she said, nope, I don't know what I'm thinking, talking to you right now. And right. I said, tell me later. And then I ran off. I was like, gosh, yeah, it's just too scary. Well, at least she acknowledged that. Like, she didn't think that, Yeah, you she's know. a teacher, too. Oh, okay. The high school. Oh, yeah. So she, she knows. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> Well, uh, what's going on in the teacher's lounge? I'm curious now that uh, school's fired back up. This is so crazy. Okay, so I know that you and Russ, y'all like to joke about how I'm not like up with it on things like that are going on and really just, you know, the world, but also mostly techie things. But these little scams that you get like emails where they email you and say Yeah, phishing scams. Yeah, like one's happened with me like with Amazon, you know, to where it looks like it's Amazon and... And it's, you, see, you think you're getting an email from Amazon. Turns out it's not Amazon or yeah, whatever. Yeah, there's some good anyway. ones out there, yeah. Yeah, so we get notifications all the time in our school district from our head tech guy saying, do not open emails. These are what they look like. Don't, you know, he, he Ross does a good job. But anyway, in Spotsylvania, Virginia, 
I don't. That's that a, yeah, you did that is right. That around your parts, Nick. That, that's that's <laughs> home of uh, right near King's Dominion, the amusement park that oh, we talked about. Okay, a few episodes back, but yes, okay. another area. So it's so it's it's a little bit out of Washington D.C., maybe like an hour and a half. Okay, so. so there's a high school there that might I say got a really cool new football field. Our football field at our high school school just got a new turf. Right, but these guys just got a new blue turf. Oh, it's like blue. Idaho, I think yeah. Boise State or somebody has one like that. I think it is Boise. Um, so anyway, they got a new blue turf. And they get an email to the district, to the county, saying, hey, it's time to make your partial payment. For the turf. And they pay. Yeah, they make a partial payment on right. this turf project, which, you know, was funded by taxpayer dollars. And so they pay $600,000. It turns out that email was a scam. It wasn't. So somebody knew they got a, a I mean, new field. I guess so. Or, and then, So they were targeted. This wasn't like one of these like... You know, I'm going to email every school. Well, I would imagine that it's not like a local target. I don't think. I I don't know. They must have. I would imagine it would be somebody that scan that has gotten information from these people that supply things to schools, like athletic association kind of things, and so then they just piggyback off of those same type of emails. The district just gave them like a credit card number or what? Um. Well, I d- it didn't go into detail about okay. that, but I would imagine someone from the district district had to pay this bill. Right. So they, they obviously, or, yeah. yeah, and sent, yeah, sent a PS. And sent how much something. was it for again? 600000 So over half a million dollars. Uh-huh. And there's, and it's gone. Like, that's it. Like, there's. Done. Like, it's, so it's like in some overseas account in like Right. Kenya and then, so then the district comes out. <laughs> Which I just, I know this isn't funny. I don't, yeah, it's, it is it's, the end of a is, long week. So like, I guess I'm just like maniacally thinking this is funny. Yeah, that but is like evil, the district but comes clever. out and makes a statement that says, hey, hey, the good news is. There's no good news. Exactly. But they're like, no, no, this is wonderful. The good news is nobody's personal information was compromised. <laughs> There's wow. been no breach. Wow, I would love to hear that <laughs> meeting. Like, uh, all right, all right, guys, what's the silver lining? Yes. What, what are we going to tell everybody? Well, yes. they didn't the get only any people that have been affected by this are all the taxpayers in our county. Okay, guys, but yeah. nobody's personal information, none of our students' information, have been breached. Well, it sounds like the, that school district needs to start doing some car washes. I know. To, oh, uh, it is pay, upsetting. Pay that money back. Yeah. No, it's evil. It is. Kind, I mean, there's a little bit of humor there. I get it. I mean, but gosh, like, and it's clever on the criminal's part, but it's evil. Yeah. I mean, like, but somebody must have, they must have been like a news article, like this school's getting a new turf or something. If this person like wasn't local. And, well, I don't know if it was local or not. I'm just thinking that yeah, maybe know. the people that supply the turf or the people that, you know, maybe they were scammed. And so then they sent emails to everybody they've done business with. Oh, uh, yeah. That, you know that what might I mean? be the case. Yeah. Because that's obviously what, you know, has, wow. I guess, ha- has happened with other I'm things. Gonna, I'm going to look for an update on that one. I want to see if they, they catch those <laughs> those criminals. Cool field, though. Yeah, good one. <laughs> All right. Well, I've got one a little bit more on the serious side, but uh, it actually hits pretty close to home for us. But um, this week, and this is going to hit early next week, but there was this massive ice raid here in Mississippi. Yeah. Um, so apparently ice um, hit a bunch of food processing plants, a lot of chicken plants, basically between Jackson, Mississippi and Hattiesburg. And they arrested, um, at least temporarily, um, they p- detained like 680, I think, um, people, migrant workers there. 
And um, I don't want to so much talk about the politics surrounding that. I think everyone's heard that story. It's made national news. Uh, it's even been a top headline uh, in a lot of places. But I want to talk about the maybe unforeseen, because I don't know if this story is making it out around the country, the unforeseen impact that it had on the school districts around there. Um, so this happened on the first day of school for these schools. And I think one of the counties was Scott County. I think that was hit hardest. And what you had was this raid took place in the afternoon. I think, you know, let's say 10, 11, 12, one o'clock and all these parents are working and now they're gone. Like they're Mm -hmm. detained. And so who's going to pick up the kids? So you talk about the chaos that you open up the show with, with like Carline and making sure kids are getting to the place they're going. Can you imagine like the, the stress that must've been on the school to know, all right, I may have, I don't know, 200, 300, 400 kids who may not have a place to go. Like, what do you do? Yes, I, I know. I I belong to a teacher thread on Facebook of all Mississippi teachers. So, well, all Mississippi te- teachers that joined the thread. Um, and there was a lot of talk about it last night. People that were in those districts saying, you know, and just other teachers offering prayers, you know, and, and support for these teachers and say and but one one lady reported from one school district that all of the children in her school just in her school that she knew that they all had a safe place they all were accounted for um but that of course it's absolutely devastating that you know they're losing their their parents right well and so you know, just I kind of went through and tried to dig up a bunch of articles that were kind of covering the school angle. And, and it looks like um, the assistant superintendent from Scott County was speaking to um, some local media. And he said what they did that afternoon that it actually happened, which was Tuesday, um, that they required all of the um, bus drivers to like get a visual reference that a parent or guardian was like picking up the kids when they went to drop off. Mm -hmm. So like that was like step one. And then apparently a bunch of community leaders, um, I think a small business owner um, came out um, and he um, helped orchestrate like, I think he actually had a camp and he was like, all right, so we've got a spot here that if kids don't have a place to go and it turns out like some strangers and neighbors and stuff were actually, you know, grabbing these kids, receiving these kids on their first day of school, which is, which is stressful, you know, on the, on the kid's side. Yeah, Yeah. it really is. Um, so, I mean, I I guess like in hindsight, um, you know, it's like, if you wish anything could have been done differently, if they were gonna do this and by they, I mean, you know, the federal district attorney and so forth is you kind of wish there was some communication on the front end. And I know they don't want to, you know, tip anyone off, but they would let the schools know, but that would also tip it off. So I don't know. Yeah. So it's just, it's just been a a pretty rough situation around here um, to kind of see how schools react. Um, I also did some more digging today and it looks like um, the day after it happened, one district was missing a 150 students the next day. um, And another district was missing 50. So it looks like, at least over 200 kids um, were missing the day after. Um, the good news is it looks like the district that was missing 150 reported only 50 missing. Um, I think that was either Thursday or today. So it looks like they are starting to come back. Um, but uh, I don't know. I don't know if you really have any comments on it beyond that, but I just kind of want people to, to look at it through those eyes of, of an educator um, and the impact that something like this has. Right, because a lot of people don't realize that the children of people that are living in the country without the proper paperwork and procedures or whatever, however you want to say it, mm-hmm. you know, 
But those children have the right to our education system. Right. And they come and, you know, I had a lot of, you know, there I saw a lot of talk um, on Facebook, which, you know, sometimes can just be so annoying, um, of people saying, well, I don't understand. How are they even in school? We have to do all this proof of residency. We have to do all this stuff. Like, how are they even in our schools? Because, number one, they have the right to be in our schools. They have a right to an education because they're a child. So um, they're not really responsible for you know, things that their parents are involved in or not involved in. Um, but also, you know, when they, they do have birth certificates, they yeah, do have cases, social security cards, they were born here, you yeah, know? Right. They, they're so so it's like, so. you know, sometimes when there are people that are outside of the education system, outside of the classroom, they're just like, I don't even understand. How does this even happen? But that that's exactly right. They just don't understand. And I think sometimes when you are removed from what I would call the front line of this situation, mm-hmm. You know, we absolutely see faces involved with this situation. And so um, if you're not able to look those little faces in the eye, you may be a little detached and removed, and you may not realize how big of an issue it really is. Yeah. Well said. Well, are you ready for uh, the Brad idea? Yes. Our guest in today's Bright Idea segment is here to give us suggestions on how we can improve the teaching of writing in K-12 schools. Dr. Steve Graham is a professor at Arizona State University, and for the past 30 years, he has studied how writing develops and how to teach writing effectively. Dr. Graham, welcome to Class Dismissed. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. I'm excited to have you because you've dedicated your life to to this topic. And I was reading an an article you wrote recently, and it's why I asked you to come on the show. And in it, you you cite a uh, 2012 um, NAEP study. And in that, it says only one third of eighth and 12th graders performed above the basic level in writing skills. How did we get here? And I know that's a broad question, but, but how do you think we got here? Well, I think one of the primary ways we got here is that there's just not enough attention paid to teaching writing uh, in schools today. So when you take a look at national surveys that have been conducted at any grade level, first to 12th grade, there's three things that you typically find. And so on the positive end, there's a small minority of teachers, 20% to about a third of teachers, really who who deliver a solid writing program, and in some instances, exceptional. But when you look at the remaining classrooms, what you see is there's very little writing uh, that's taking place, even with older kids, and there's very little time spent on teaching writing. And when I said earlier, there's very little writing, most of the writing that occurs as you move into high school, uh, the three most common things that teachers say that their students do, fill in the blanks on, you know, worksheets, write single sentence responses to questions, uh, make a list, and then something that most people would probably count as writing is to write a summary of something that's read. So we're just not seeing enough attention paid to writing in schools. It's a complex uh, skill. Um, it takes a, a good time, a good bit of time to learn, and it doesn't come naturally to uh, most students. That's interesting. Why is it not a priority, do you think, for, and I don't want to just blanket and say all teachers in all schools, but for all, where we're seeing these holes, why are they not prioritizing writing in the classroom? I think one of the reasons for this um, is that it hasn't been a major part of most reform efforts in the U.S. Uh, in the last century of this century. The one exception to this is the Common Core State Standards, which did put a priority on writing, particularly in terms of using writing as a tool for learning. Um, The challenge has been, though, 
is that, um, you know, what I think a lot of policymakers hope common core state standards would do, um, that really wasn't actualized very well, partially because the assessments um, that have been centered around common core state standards haven't really emphasized writing um, in the way that the common core state standards had kind of visualized this, which is using writing as a tool for learning. What we tend to get in most states and at the national level is that grades like four, eight, or 12 will assess, um, particularly at state levels, one kind of writing uh, each year uh, in those grades. Uh, For example, narrative writing may be in fourth grade. And the unintended consequence of that is what we see is that there's not a lot of attention to writing in earlier grades. And then in fourth grade, it's almost all around narrative writing. Same thing could be said if we talk about persuasive writing in eighth grade or some other kind of writing in 12th grade. So there, you know, some of these are policy related issues and kind of a a will issue about, um, you know, where we put uh, our emphasis. How can someone like you in your position, and I know, you know, writing articles like you have um, is one way to do this, but how do you, how do you change that? How do you get that top down change to, to get writing at all grade levels? Well, I think it's, it's both top down and bottom up change. So, uh, I want to give an example of bottom-up change, and I'll uh, respond to what you're talking about is top-down. So one organization that's been actively involved in terms of promoting writing um, over about a 50-, 60-year period is the National Writing Project. That started with teachers in San Francisco at the ground level who were interested in writing and talked with each other and helped each other become uh, better writers and better teachers of writing. And so I don't want to de-emphasize the importance of that bottom level, uh, you know, kind of rising up through the ranks, so to speak, emphasis on teaching writing and making that a priority. Uh, I think that's very likely to stick because people have a vested interest in it. I think at the um, policy level, I would like to kind of refer to what's happened in reading as a way of thinking about this. So, you know, reading enjoys considerable emphasis as a policy initiative. We want our kids to read. We want our kids to read well. So why is that the case? Well, obviously, it's an important skill, and I could make the same case for writing. But one of the things that's happened is there's been public campaigns about the importance of reading and what happens if you have difficulty reading. And, you know, the readings, it's a challenging task for some kids. The other thing that's happened because the public has put pressure um, on policymakers and there's this view that reading is critical, it's become important to policymakers as well. So the public's informed about the importance of reading, policymakers are informed about its importance and the need to teach it. And what happens is that trickles its way down in terms of policy initiatives at both the federal and also at the state level, which end up uh, affecting what happens in districts and schools. A similar kind of thing uh, needs to happen for writing. And I also want to say this isn't a U.S. problem per se. When we look at what's happening across the world, uh, most countries report a similar kind of um, thing to what you started off with about, you know, one third of kids write really well and two thirds of kids don't write as well as we'd like. And we don't see a lot of uh, high level instruction either in the U.S in Europe, in China, in Australia, um, or South America. So this is a, a worldwide problem, not just a U.S. problem. I know there's no silver bullet 
but you do list a lot of solutions and I'd like to kind of touch on a few of those and maybe you can elaborate, but I know, I know you say, um, there's no singled agreed on way to teach writing, but it's important that goals and curriculum and instructional methods and assessments are all aligned, right? That is correct. And that I would make the case that's important for any aspect of instruction that we might engage in so that you have a clear idea of what you're going to do. And not only at, at a policy level, but in schools at the administrative level, and that teachers know what those goals are. And uh, everybody's, in a sense, on the same page. Then you have to have activities that you put into place to make sure that happens. And you need a way of measuring or assessing um, that this is going well. And I'm not necessarily talking about state-level tests here. Um, if I'm in a school and I'm implementing and trying to meet particular goals, I want to be monitoring both as a principal and as individual teachers how things are going. Because things don't always go to plan, and we need to be able to make adjustments at the ground level, the issue with state tests is by the time you get that information, you're already into the next year. So it's not as useful. You also say it's helpful to connect writing to other subject areas and students' lived experience. I mean, it seems like just looking at my kids coming home with assignments, they my, their teachers do that a lot, um, but I guess not enough. Well, so one of the things when I mentioned that you know, I said some schools, there are some schools that are doing an exceptional job. So one of the things to keep in mind here, it doesn't mean, you know, um, if your teachers, your, your kid's teacher is doing a great job, it may be that another classroom, it's not as strong. But what we can say, and we can say this without hesitation, is when you write about things that you're learning in school, it increases your understanding and remembrance of that information. When you write about things that you're reading, and that can include things like taking notes, um, answering questions about the material uh, read, summarizing it, or writing more extended responses where you defend a point of view, create a narrative around it, or talk about how to apply the information, um, kids understand that material better and remember it better. And the other thing is, is that when we teach writing, so we teach kids about the specific aspects of writing, there's a corresponding improvement in how well they read. When we increase how much kids write, there's also a corresponding improvement in their reading comprehension. So there's a lot of really good reasons that writing should be playing a more central role in terms of all classrooms uh, in the U.S. I really like what you say here. You're suggesting that writing instruction needs to take into account the types of writing students will do at home, in higher education, and on the job. And I don't know that we are really discussing about like how important writing is when you get into the real world. So one of the ways of thinking about this is um, what employers say about what their workers need to be successful now. So in uh, white collar jobs, 90% of employers now say that how well you write is used in decisions about hiring people and also in promoting people. Um, But I think just as importantly, when you ask blue collar employers Um, uh, um, blue-collar workers about the importance of writing. Today, it's important in almost every job. I recently heard in Scottsdale, where I live, a police officer say he draws a pencil every day or a pen. He's not drawn his gun once in the last year. And so that's not what you usually think of when you think of a police officer. You think of something much more action-oriented, but every day they're writing. And that's the case for a lot of 
uh, professions now, and it's going to increase in the future. Yeah, I have to definitely agree with you there. Um, so let's, I know we kind of started off by saying there's no single degree on way to teach writing, but it, you know, you have a captive audience of K through 12 teachers here. If you could tell them one thing that they should be doing to improve the writing of their students in their classroom, like what's that thing that you would piece of information you would give them? So I, I can't give one thing. That would be the silver I know. bullet. Thing. I know, right. Um, but I would say five things, and I can keep those fairly short. One, kids have to write. And it's better if they write about something that has a real purpose, either to them or in the classroom. Second, we need to look for ways of supporting them as they write. They need to know what the goals, they need to, to set some of their own goals for writing, but teachers need to be clear about the goals that they are giving students. Say, you know, we can support kids in other ways as well, you know, providing them feedback on their writing, having other kids provide feedback, et cetera. But as they write, we want to support them. We also need to teach. You know, writing requires specialized skills. You know, we have to learn how to spell. We have to learn how to type or uh, handwrite. We have to learn how to plan what we're doing. We have to develop evaluative criteria for assessing what's going on. We have to become facile and fluent in terms of sentence construction. We also want to create a, an environment in which kids can thrive and take risks. You know, one of the things about writing, I think it, one of the challenges is it's so personal to us. And so if we are not able to take risk and to try something out without it coming back to kind of bite us, that creates a problem in terms of students' development. And then finally, something we've already talked about, we want to make sure we connect writing to learning and reading and, and vice versa. That is a, a great list. And, and I know you have been recently doing research on um, using digital tools when writing. So I kind of want to dive down and uh, talk about that a little bit. I mean, when you say digital tools and writing, like what type of tools are you talking about? So two of the different kinds of tools that we've been working on recently, or what I, one of them is what I'd call a hopped up word processor or a processor on steroids. Um, we're, we've developed this in conjunction with a group in Massachusetts called CAST, who's a universal design group. And their basic idea is you develop digital tools that can be used by anybody. So you have the option, like if you're planning something, you could draw it out. You can speak to the machine and it'll write out your ideas, or you can write out notes for what you're planning on doing. Also, at each process or step of the writing process, there's various forms of assistance that are built into the machine. Um, we use the machine in an online community, say a classroom, so you can immediately ask for feedback on your goals or, you know, on some aspect of your plan or something that you've written from selected peers, from the teachers or from other uh, students. If you're not sure how to do something, you can click on something that shows another kid how to do it. So one of the things that I think is really exciting about the future is we're starting to see a lot of tools that can support writers in ways that we were never able to support writers in the past. And this includes even skipping the, the transcription part of writing where you have to type or you have to um, handwrite something. Now, all of those kinds of things come with their own challenges. Um, but, you know, in some ways, we're on the verge of a, a new era of how we might go about writing. The other kind of example I want to give is that um, I'm not crazy about the idea of uh, computer tools replacing the teacher. So what we've been doing is, in terms of teaching kids strategies for planning or drafting or revising their text, 
what we've done is we've created some digital tools that provide extra practice to students, in a sense, a kind of semi-intelligent tool that provides more feedback, additional practice, so, so that you can more individualize instruction for kids, which is hard to do in a classroom when you've got 30 students. So in that sense, it's a teacher's helper around the instructional end. So those are, those are two ways in which we've been working with digital tools. I um, have to do a lot of writing with my work, and I'm actually using a tool called Grammarly, not a sponsor of the show or anything. But it, it's as I write, it may say, oh, did you mean to write this? Because and it's almost like a, like you said, a souped up word processor that's offering suggestions <laughs> and kind of cross checking my grammar, making sure everything's appropriate. But then I kind of wonder sometimes, is it? Am I not using it as a crutch? And, and I want your opinion on that because I almost think I was a bad speller for a while because in high school and junior high, I had access to Microsoft Word, which would you know correct spelling for me all the time. At what point does the digital tool kind of hurt us in a way? Well, so you know, and one way of thinking about this is we're in a bit of a transition period. So I'm going to skip from reading, from writing, and, and give an example in reading that will illustrate this point. Um, with the group cast that I was mentioning before, we developed a, a portal online where there were very short um, things that kids could pick to read, thousands of them. They came from Sports Illustrated, National Geographic, Scholastic, who partnered on this project, and they were high interest kind of things. And if you went in and you were uh, an adolescent who wasn't such a great reader, you could read something without actually ever having read a word. Uh, because the material could be read to you by the computer. Now, what that did was it changed kind of our conceptualization about thinking about reading. And I think we're going to see more of this where things like speech-to-text synthesis and writing, um, I mean, you see it now, you know, with people on their phones, becomes a more common mode of writing than paper and pencil. I'm not saying that those are going to disappear, but a larger share of the market, if you'd like a business term on this, increasingly we're seeing digital tools like the one that you're using and the ones that are now available and will be available in the future, um, you know, taking precedent. And they're going to change the way that we think about writing. So I'm not saying that spelling is not going to be important in the future. I'm not saying that grammar is not going to be important, but you're going to have these kind of tools that help you out on this uh, consistently. In fact, I don't even think about spell checkers now. You know, they, they automatically correct my spelling. Would I give that up? Not a chance in the world. Right. Well, and, and so I've got to ask you, I mean, you've, you're a gentleman who has spent his life, you know, studying writing and, and teaching people how to write and teaching people how to teach how to write. And and here you are, if I'm hearing you right, you're saying, uh, well, we're going to end up in a place where you just dictate some what you want written down. And is that writing in, in your mind Is when you aren't using your fingers? Uh, it is. And so the reason for that is, is because when you look at, say, writing by hand broadly, you know, what you're really talking about are a large array of skills that come into play that help you uh, carry out that task. And the transcription part is only one part of that. Uh, it's an important part, mind you. And it's one that, you know, if you're writing by hand or typing, you want to have automatized and not to think about. But it's only one part of the process. And, um, you know, I also want to be really clear about this. Each of these new tools, while they may create great affordances for the writer, they create new problems. So if you think about, um, 
I'll just give a, a, a personal example. I had a colleague from China who did a um, interview with me orally. And because I didn't want to, I'm a fairly slow typist. I didn't want to type out responses to his answers. And he sent me the interview after it was done orally. And I was shocked by, you know, how disorganized it was. I thought I was very clear, very organized, and I had to go back and rewrite it. So one of the issues is that when you um, write uh, orally is you tend to write extemporaneously. Mm -hmm. Whatever's in your head comes down onto the page. And so there was this great study done in the 1960s, back in the days, 50s, of Mad Men when you used to have these dictaphones. And what they found was that in the workplace, with people who were really good with dictaphones, they spent two-thirds of their writing time planning in advance. Now, that's, you know, you need a little bit more there because with a dictaphone, you can't actually see what you produce because it just strictly went on to tape. But, you know, what this means in terms of this kind of oral production, planning becomes even more important. I mean, it's always important in the writing process, but now it takes on an even more um, critical role. Um, and, you know, you sometimes want to put a little buffer between yourself and what you say, as we often see on the internet, on tweets, et cetera. Right. Well, Dr. Graham, I got to tell you, you have blown my mind about the future of writing as well here. And I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us and giving us some tips on, on how uh, we can improve writing in K through 12. I was more than glad. Thank you for asking. Are you ready for our pop quiz? I'm ready for your pop quiz. All right. First question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? Oh, writing. I had had a a feeling you were going to go that way. Yeah, when I say anything else. Right. Um, What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? You know, I think one of the things that we probably could do a a better job on, I'm actually going to say two, but I'll start with one. One is is being able to be um, more self-sufficient in terms of economics and life skills once you leave school. Um, I think the other one is that um, in response to not everybody going to college, we've lost a bit on that vocational track over the years. So if you go to Europe, you know, there are many kids who go into apprenticeships um, in areas of interest to them. And I think that our, our unrelenting emphasis on everybody going to college um, has meant that this hasn't always served every single student well. What does every child deserve? Uh, you know, they deserve a great teacher and a great school in every grade. Um, and the reason I say that is there's some evidence in, in literacy that if you have three really great teachers in a row, you're going to do all right. Um, but, you know, what often happens is um, we don't always get, um, you know, the instruction we deserve or the school we deserve. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? You know, we ask them to do so much and um, we expect that schools can change everything. You know, I think there's this expectation that all of society's ills can be uh, cured by a good education or good schools. Schools are part of that process, but they're also hamstrung. So if you take a look, I live in a fairly affluent town, um, but if you went to South Phoenix, you would find that the amount that's spent um, per pupil on an education is much less than it's going to be in the town that I live in. 
that's not equitable. Uh, and it doesn't have to be that way, but we have a funding system that centers around uh, county and state um, initiatives. And so what happens is we have great inequities in terms of um, you know, the types of education uh, each individual kid gets depending upon where they live. That really is not fair. What's the best gift to give an educator? You know, I'd like to think a book. Um, you know, this is going to relate back to my first response on writing. The whole reason to write is to be read. And so I think books are great gifts for educators. Um, but, you know, if you ask this in a broader sense, and particularly in the state that I live in, in Arizona, a decent wage would be the great right. best gift. You know, teachers are way underpaid and way under-respected for what they do. It's a tough job. Um, it's, you know, it's long hours and um, it's an uncertain environment. I was in Germany this last summer and um, it was interesting. Teachers are extremely well-paid and well-respected. It's considered one of the best jobs in Germany to have, is to be a teacher in an elementary or a secondary uh, school. Um, that's the that's what I wish we could have in the U.S. Yeah, I think many of us would love to be there one day, and hopefully we will. Which teacher changed your life? Mr. Robinson, um, fifth grade. I was one of those kids whose activity level was off the charts, um, was very impulsive, um, basically spent about three days a week being sent to the principal's office through fourth grade. And um, I had a male teacher in fifth grade, was my first male teacher, um, who really made everything in the classroom active. And for me, that helped a lot. Um, so if you ask me, are there any teachers that you remember in elementary school? It's the only one I remember because I went from, you know, every day in trouble to every day enjoying school. Or virtually every day. And last question, pen or pencil? Uh, pen. It right. glides a little easier. See, I, I was curious. I didn't know if you were going to say something like diction or something, you know, you're going to throw yeah. for a loop there. But. No, um, no, no. For me, you know, actually for writing most of the time, keyboard. Right. That, that is where we are now. Uh, again, yeah. Dr. Graham, we appreciate you taking the uh, time to chat with us. Uh, you were a fascinating interview. Thank you very much. And um, I, I hope your listeners and you have a great day. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. We want to hear from you. So if you want to send us an idea or a comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So if you like what you heard today, please be sure and hit that subscribe button. And we'd also love it if you'd leave us a five-star review. Don't forget you can connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash classdismissedpodcast or on Twitter. Just search for us by typing in Class Dismiss. On behalf of Russ with School Status and Lissa representing all the teachers out there, I'm Nick Ortega. And I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed.